Welcome to the Hobcast, a weekly podcast from Hobeck Books, an independent publisher of thrillers, crime and suspense novels. Each week, we'll take you behind the scenes of what we do, the challenges and the triumphs, the bumps and troughs of building a new creative business in this pandemic world. We'll hear from the people who make all this possible, the authors, cover designers and editors, and we'll have expert insights from our guest star interviews. Nothing is off the agenda on the Hopcast from Hobeck Books, as we combine trad values and an indie spirit. Welcome to the Hobcast. I've lost track, I have to say, of what episode this might be because we didn't do one last week. Uh, it's not for want of trying, but things. Yeah, we us. had technical issues, didn't we? And then we yeah. ran out of time to do anything about it. So we did, we did, we had problems. It's uh, either eighty-nine or ninety, but I'm not sure. I think it's ninety. Anyway, welcome to the show. Doesn't matter what number it is. You're always welcome to the show. My name is Adrian Hobart. My name is Rebecca Collins, and together we run Hobet Books, UK independent publishers of the following. Four genres, if I can remember what they are. How to kill people. Right, that's crime. <laughs> yes. Okay, how to kill people on a massive scale. That's, um, what's that? Bird? Thrillers. Thrillers. Um, how to kill your husband or wife. Uh, sus- well, that's actually, yeah, suspense. I suspense, guess. really? Well, psychological thrillers. What's our fourth one then? Uh, crime, mystery, suspense, thrillers. No. Mystery. Mysteries. <laughs> It's a mystery why we can't remember that it's mysteries. <laughs> anyway, those are our genres, and uh, we're very proud publishers of a number of authors, 23 of them, in fact. And we have a new book coming out this week. So our guest this week is Rob Gittins, whose name has been attached to umpteen enormous television programs in the UK. Umpteen. Umpteen. That's, that's, that's between 13 and 20. Well, I don't know. But I mean, <laughs> he, he, he is one of the most prolific scriptwriters for particularly continuous fiction or continuing fiction, uh, drama rather, yeah. which is to say soap operas. But he is the longest serving writer on EastEnders. He is. 36 years. And his new book, I'm Not There, his seventh novel is coming out with us at Hoback uh, this week. On so we'll Tuesday. talk to Rob Gittins. Uh, a little later, and it's a it's a lovely interview. And here's a man who really knows his craft and the philosophy of why he does what he does and how he does it. So, I think you'll get a lot from it. He also um, handles the random question very very well. Yeah, very effectively. Uh, so With all, a ding, absolutely. All of that to come. Um, we're so excited to be publishing Rob this week. So, uh, one of our new cohort of Hobeck authors, and there are more to come yet 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 this year. So, um, we're very excited at the moment uh let's just deal with some news and obviously this week uh has been uh certainly the beginning of the week was dominated by her majesty's funeral um queen elizabeth ii and that's one of the reasons why we didn't feel uncomfortable not publishing an episode because um it would have coincided with the funeral itself so i watched that you know minute to minute pretty much all of it i didn't watch any of it no you didn't i was working you were, well, <laughs> yeah, you were. Um, I was doing little bits and bobs no, I, I didn't in mean, the downtimes. Yeah, I just, I just got got my head down. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, it, it was it was a fascinating occasion, and uh, it spoke to so many things about British life um, and human um, existence, really. And you know, um, the I think it brought a nation having to face up to death, really, because it was such a clever service in in actually facing it head on talking about it 
the whole way through in the Westminster service particularly. Uh, and I had a, a, a personal interest in the, uh, as I've mentioned before, in the uh, commit, committal um, service which was held at St. George's Chapel in Windsor because the Dean of Windsor is, a, is, a, is a, an old family friend. Um, and he has been serving the Queen in that capacity for 25 years. And essentially now, it's well, well past retirement age for, the, for a clergyman, uh, will now no doubt leave the scene, I think. Uh, that's the Right Reverend David Connor, um, who did a great job. What a great, um, you know, his address was, was fantastic. But the moment, and I mentioned this in the interview with Rob, uh, that, that struck us both, I think, is the bit where... Will you say that? I didn't see it. Well, didn't you see the God Save the King? No. No, you haven't seen it. All right, so Charles is staring at the coffin, and they start singing God Save the King at St. George's Chapel, and the tears are building in his eyes, and he's got this incredible... It, 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 it's a... Uh, you can see the emotions crossing his mind, this sort of sense of, wow, this is me now. I'm the king, and she's gone. Uh, my mother's gone, and, and or Mama, as he called her, um, in his um, an initial address to the nation. So it was just a really powerful moment. Um, yeah, interesting times. Anyway, we will get on to other news, and um, if we're... It's a terrible segue, but... Um, one of the greatest writers of, of, of recent years, Hilary Mantel, passed away only in the last few hours, or a few, well, a couple of days, really. And actually, I've just heard Nurse Ratchet from One Flew Over Cuckoo's Nest, too. Oh, the actress who played Nurse Ratchet. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, one of the great films of the 70s. Um, Hilary Mantel, uh, I've read a couple of them. I haven't read the third of the, uh, you know, the trilogy of Thomas Cromwell books. No, nor me. Um, but she did the wreath lectures a few years ago, didn't mm. she? And they were absolutely gripping if yeah. a non-fiction intellectual lecture can be gripping i thought they were brilliant yeah and she of course uh, the winner of the man booker prize um great loss great loss um she hadn't been well for several years but mm. eventually it was a stroke i believe yeah still um, always a shock though isn't it it is yeah. it is and and you know um she took historical fiction to a whole new avenue really in depth and one of the great masters of negative space where you know you know you were kept off balance at times you were wondering why we were going into such detail particularly at the beginning of wolf hall about fabric um and it's because you know it's bringing home this aspect of thomas cromwell that's often forgotten that he was a fabric merchant at one stage across europe i mean he had this amazing renaissance life uh, as a you know the son of a i think it was a, bar, a butcher or a bar Keep you know an innkeeper or something like that. anyway brutalized as a child he ran off to become a mercenary and then became wealthy in his own right through you know selling fabrics across Europe and became a spy master and all sorts and then came back and became Henry VIII's you know right hand man for a for a <laughs> a, a torrid period um, just extraordinary anyway Henry Mantel uh, we uh, we salute you um, let's move on to other stuff that is sort of industry focused news particularly on the independent sector and some really interesting stories that have come up this week um okay there's a the story about amazon who um i don't know the details but they've they've sort of uh retreated slightly on well they've they've reduced they're, they're planning to i don't think they're doing well uh, so so this is the, the the issue is is that they had a very large window in which you could return your ebooks so essentially you were if you were paying 2.99 for it for right, that's what our usual price is for our ebooks. Then you had a you were entitled to return it, having read it, mm. and get your refund, and that would be stripped away from 
Uh, it's the same story as we had with with audiobooks and, and Audible, yeah, which is another Amazon company, of course. Um, and so they are narrow. I don't know how much this is now being this window is now being narrowed, no. but this is under pressure from the Society of Authors and the Alliance of Independent Authors, who we're members of. Um, yeah, it's it's high time. And I, um, I, it was a few months ago, but there was a conversation on social media about this, and there was somebody who commented and they said. Oh, I've been returning books because I had too many on my Kindle. I enjoyed it. I didn't know I was uh, yeah, damaging the author. Yeah. They had no idea. No, well, and I mean... he said I regularly have a clear out. <laughs> right. <laughs> yes. Well, I mean, this is um, yeah, but people were deliberately gaming the system. Yes, to, of course. Yeah. To effectively give themselves free copies and uh, you know free reading. They didn't know that, that that it was the author. You know, they think they're damaging Amazon. No, they're not. Because because Amazon Amazon always protects itself first and foremost. So that's um, that's an interesting development. We'll we'll look up for the details of of how long that window is now going to be. But hopefully that will reduce the amount of returns. Uh, what else has caught your eye? Um, so uh, well, I mean, I think you knew about this anyway. That Spotify are mm. now. Um, an audiobook platform. And that's what I was trying to say. <laughs> and are going to be an audiobook platform. So, you know, with your audiobook, you could reach as many as 433 million new listeners. You could. You could. Now, I just wonder, I mean, this is this is an interesting development. They bought recently, Spotify a few months ago bought Findaway Voices. Findaway Voices are based in Ohio. They are the main uh, alternative distributor of audiobooks to using uh, Audible. And you can still get onto Audible through Find A Way. We use them because it's a very easy system of you upload the book, uh, your audio book, to Find A Way, and then you sign an agreement. And there are 42 different platforms that it goes onto. But then Spotify bought Find A Way. Find A Way is, that's, you know, one of the jobs they do is to uh, offer a platform where you can distribute your audio book. But the other thing they do is they also create audio books. And so uh, I am in the process of putting my own narration voice reel on there. I have done work for them in the past where I've been commissioned to be the voice of a book by Find Away Voices. So this is Spotify taking a very strong move into the market and directly sitting in front of Audible. What they have not said so far is how creators, that's authors and narrators, are going to be remunerated under this new deal. We just don't know yet. Or at least I haven't seen any indication as to what the sort of rates are. No. Because this is a streaming service. Now, traditionally with music, um, they pay a pittance um, for an album to be played on Spotify. The artist gets a few pence. Now, that really isn't going to be cutted for people who've sweated writing a book and spent hours and hours recording and editing the final product. Because... In America, most people expect to pay $25 for an audiobook. Unless, really? unless they're on Audible on and uh, you know, if they so this could be a big big problem for the creative community. Not something to be celebrated at all. I I just don't know yet. We don't know. But our books will be there now because we've signed up with Find a Way so therefore it'll be yeah, on Spotify. Yeah, so it makes yeah, there's, that's just a the... And just to say that a new Hobeck audiobook um, is on its way very, very soon. Uh, on the 11th of October, Sin, the second of the Merseyside Crime series by Malcolm Hollingtree. You have to do out. that in the right accent. <laughs> 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 
Oh, you put me on the spot. Sorry. Merseyside Crime Series. Brilliant. Um, no, that wasn't very good. That's gone Welsh, you see. <laughs> like Gavin and Stacey yeah though. I've gone Gavin and, ne- no, you, see, you shouldn't have done that it's not fair I mean I have narrated it and it's been um, it's been a challenge because doing all those different accents um, they slip into Welsh sometimes and uh, I'm not doing scouse I would like to say chucking on a can of coke last, that's more like it last weekend we, we were at the Harrogate Noir Festival and yes. after the festival uh, you and I we went out for a drink with uh, another narrator called Greg Patmore who yes. we are going to have on the show at some point yeah we are and it, from from my perspective, it was hilarious because I was with two people from Yorkshire, then two people from Liverpool, yeah, then two always... people from Manchester, then Americans. Yeah. And they were they were bouncing off each other. Greg's much it's better. Hilarious. At, he's much better at accents than I am. But uh, yeah, I have I have managed to to do the Merseyside Crime Series October the eleventh. Uh, please don't take my North Wales accent or Cardiff accent. Um, and at the end, evidence I, of what it's going to sound like because it won't sound like that. The end of the evening was a, was the high point for me when I asked you to do a Michael Caine. Oh, we had a him. Michael Caine off. Yeah, yeah, we did. I'm not doing it now. Um, anyway, <laughs> but you got no one to Michael Caine off with. No, 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 no. Any other news stories this week? Um, I suppose the only other one is um, it's about AI again. Mm-hmm. Um, so artificial intelligence is taking over the world. In it, what form is it now taking? Well, in cover design. Uh huh. So there's a software. Well, it's probably not quite the way you think it is, this story. So there's a software called Midjourney, which I know Jane Mapp, our designer, mm. has, has tinkered with. And what the issue is, not so much that AI will design covers for everybody um, in the future, there'll be no jobs for cover designers, is that the, the sources of the images that you create in Midjourney have come from artists and they're not getting any not getting any pay. Yeah, so although yes, the, the idea that you can artificial artificially generate covers without any designer input, human input at all, yes, of course that's a worry. But, you know, it's, it's more complicated than that. Yeah. That is yeah. I mean, essentially artificial intelligence at the moment is nothing but bad news, it strikes me for the creative world. If you know, because there are always going to be people who are prepared to take the shortcuts. Absolutely. If it's cheaper and it looks just as good, why wouldn't you? Exactly. Exactly. Or um, sounds just as good or, or reads yeah, just all, as well. All of that stuff. Yeah. So, you know, artificially generated stories, then read by an artificial narrator with a cover designed by an AI. Well, I mean, we have to accept that AI is going to become so sophisticated. It's going to take over lots of aspects of the current industries that, you know, as your son's headmaster always says, you'll be doing jobs in 30 years' time that haven't even been invented yet, in industries <laughs> that haven't been invented. And that is the nature of the world at the moment. But, this, the, you know, I still maintain, and this is something that Greg and I were discussing last week, it's the importance of, you know, when you know that something is artificially generated, it actually takes away from the experience. Because if you think about, I, I look at the way that movies are made, and... One of the things that excited me as a seven-year-old about Star Wars when it first came out was the fact that someone had gone to the trouble of making all the models that you see on screen and it had been a physical process of creation to create the illusion of space battles. Mm. See what I mean? Now you can do it in your computer. You don't need any of that. You don't need to actually physically make anything. It's it's all done. You know, you just have to put the you know the algorithms to work. You know, figure out how the lighting's going to be and, and let the automation do the rest. And it's so much easier. You can do it at home. You can make Star Wars at home pretty much now. Um, 
the why are we doing that well we should be perhaps but you know the the, the point is that it, it you know what was impossible then and only done by people who are creating the art for the first time um can now be done at home and i think it actually becomes something that you don't i mean you sit there and you watch a big film with all the flashy special effects and all that sort of stuff and you think yeah that's really visually very impressive but i'm not moved by it and i think that's where the ai thing falls short absolutely so you you are talking about something that i wrote about in my dissertation it's called what i call the essence so if something has the essence it ha- it creates an emotional response in the listener the viewer the reader whatever it is ai cannot cannot do that no at the moment and possibly never i don't think it will whether no, it's right. music art writing audio whatever it is mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. true enough true enough we ought to get to our interview. Here's somebody who has really been there and seen it all in the world of television, particularly, but in radio drama as well, as well as documentary maker. I mean, this man has every amazing roller credits. It, Rob Gittins. Um, I knew his name because I've always been a nerd for watching, even though they, the, the credits now on TV programs get squashed. Oh, I, yeah. I think that's how I knew his name, actually, because yeah, I recognise his well, name. But they always get squashed, don't they, now? So... It, it, because they're always going to trail to the program that's on BBC Two or the next program coming up, they'll lose half the screen. So the credits are going at 100 miles an hour. Yeah, not like the 70s. But, but, no, but but Rob's name has popped up on some of the most you know iconic episodes of EastEnders, as well as being one of the lead figures behind Publicum, people like us in uh, in Wales, and uh, the Archers. Uh, all sorts of Emmerdale. He's written for Emmerdale. He even resigned from Emmerdale at one stage. Oh, he talks about that, doesn't and he? And El Dorado, dare we say. We actually talk about that too. But, <laughs> you know, Rob has done all that and he's written seven novels now. He's a great storyteller and a great thinker about stories. I story. think he's just born to tell stories. He is. He is. And, um, you know, he joined us from, we were very jealous, his wonderful working area, which is just a massive library, uh, beautifully set out in his West Wales home. Uh, and it's really frankly uh, a pinch yourself honor that hobeck books is the home of rob gittins well it is always a pleasure to speak to one of our own hobeck authors especially in the week that they released their first hobeck book with us and we are joined by rob gittins welcome to the hobcast thank you adrian thank you bex you're very welcome we're not in a golf course that's the only other place we've ever met isn't it yes we've had <laughs> Two lunches in that golf course, and it was it was lovely. Actually, it was lovely. Yeah, <laughs> so the the golf course in question is my former golf course because I haven't re-signed this year at uh, Lillishaw Hall, which is in Shropshire. Yeah, and Toby still, my youngest Toby still has lessons there. He does. Yeah. He does indeed. But we had two lovely lunches, and um, you know, to be honest, when we first had our first lunch with you, Rob, I was sitting there thinking and pinching myself a little. I'm talking to Rob Gittins. Um, <laughs> because i knew your name when your submission came through i was aware of your work um mm-hmm. or at least you know i could feel the echoes of it because your career has been extraordinary and you are still the longest established writer on eastenders which i, I suppose you know it's almost like a millstone for you i guess but what an achievement well i i, I think they forget i'm there Adrian. You know? <laughs> It's a little bit like uh, new exec producers come in and they say, well, look, um, here's, here's your office and, you know, here's the lot and here's the actors. And there's this guy. <laughs> He's always been around. 
and it, look, he, he doesn't bump into the furniture. So, you know, if you want to keep him, just keep him. So um, I think that that's it, really. You know, that's how it works in EastEnders. No, no. I mean, come on. I mean, they give you, I mean, to be honest, your name has gone against some of the most iconic episodes. I, I think I'm right in saying you, you, you penned the, the 30th anniversary live episode. Is that right? Yeah, there's been a, there's, there's obviously been a few over the years. It's, it's true. I mean, and no, seriously, I um, I really enjoy. It. I mean, it's 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 like anything. I mean, I've been on it now for thirty six years, so um, we've spoiled an awful lot of Christmases in that time. <laughs> Are you responsible for this <laughs> ruined Christmases? Yeah, yes, we we spread an awful lot of misery around the nation over the over the course of thirty six years. Um, but it's. it's I, it, it's one of those shows, it's, it's very, very rare you actually get the chance to tell a story. And sometimes we have done this literally over 36 or 37 years. Uh, no, no, there's no other kind of medium really where you can do that. And in fact, we're doing it now. We, the, the big thing on is we sort of bury bombs in stories. And then we say, well, we're going to explode that at a certain time. And whether I'll be around for this one, I don't know. But we've just buried one now, which we're going to explode in 21 years' time. And it's 21. it's amazing. Wow, yeah. that's forward planning. It's amazing to have that sort of sweep, you know, which is which which I do get a massive kick of, out of because I, I write for a, um, a variety of different shows, but very often um, the duration is 50 minutes or, or, you know, or 75 minutes, and that's the canvas you've got. Um, whereas in something like you know a long-running serial, you've you've got a you, you've got a much broader kind of um, um, a broader canvas to um, to work on. But in terms of extenders, I mean, you know, it is one of these. It's it's such a landmark show for the BBC. It's so important to the BBC, and it goes through. And I'm saying, saying this as an observer of you know picking it up off. Uh, I don't know. The tabloids love to talk about it. But they'll change whoever's in charge every three, four years, it seems. Uh, there'll be a new direction, a new impetus, and, uh, a, you know, a uh, the challenge to get the soaps figures up to the numbers that it was when it first launched, which was, yes. you know, 20 million. I watched on, the uh, first episode. Right. <laughs> you know, those mega, mega figures that uh, only a state funeral can command. Um, yeah. And, 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 that is to to survive all of those changes is in itself an achievement isn't it um yeah i guess it's it's um i mean there are changes but in a sense they're all pulling in the same direction if you know what I mean by this i mean genuinely I, I, I don't think there's any exec producer ever and some have been fantastic and some have been not quite as fantastic but i don't think any exec producer comes in and says i'm gonna make this show really bad you know? i mean you all really want to make it good and sometimes it, it doesn't quite work out because various things you know the visions whatever may be um is, is wrong or they just have bad luck sometimes as well so i think there's always a sense even when a new guy comes in that um they genuinely want to make their mark and make this show the best they can but you're absolutely right they have to they have to navigate changing times uh, and the, I mean, the the, the stark ex- example of this, I mean, of the changing times. Bex just said she watched the first episode. Well, <laughs> yes, there were, from memory, three channels then. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so, was... yeah. I don't think we even had Brookside yet, did we? <laughs> I can't remember. 
that's all we had. In a sense, it, the landscape was much easier in broadcasting because if you didn't like it, we're going to get you back in the end because you've not got much else to watch, to be honest with you, you know, really. And, 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 and that's the biggest, the, 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 the biggest change we've had to kind of deal with is the fact that now I've no idea how many channels there are. I mean, there must be thousands and thousands of channels, streamers, and, and that's what we've got to try and compete with. And I think a show like EastEnders, the, the, the biggest danger is that you try and compete through sensationalism. Um, yes. Because other shows have tried to do that. Um, I quit uh, one show when they tried to do it. Um, and it's, it's that way madness lies. And, you know, you, I mean, the show in question I quit was, a show, uh, was Emmerdale. Well, I used to write for that years and years ago. And I quit when they dropped a jumbo jet on the village. I remember <laughs> that, yeah. But I remember as a viewer thinking it's getting ridiculous because you do, you just think it's well, supposed to be about farming. <laughs> you, you just break the contract with the audience specs in a way because it's not that kind of show. Um, also, um, there's something deeply offensive about doing something like that. And then the next week, people are in the pub talking about lamb whatever it may be. And also the biggest problem we have is the fact, I mean, it's, it's, it's something everyone's attempted to do on a long running show at one time, but if you drop a jumbo jet on the village one week, what the heck do you do the next week? I mean, how do you Yeah, you can't it? really top it, can you? No, so you, you get in this dreadful spiral where actually you, you know, you're, you're trying to kind of create more and more false shocks for an audience who are getting more and more used to them. And it doesn't work doesn't work mm. really it um the, the the very best stories i think on a show like eastenders um are the stories that you'll find on page five or six of a daily newspaper not page one page yeah. one story, yeah the sort of people stories aren't they the it's too big you know the the, the 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 massive massive stories our world and the world that we create it, it's it's not it it's it's not robust enough um, to absorb them because if for example you did a jumbo jet drops on EastEnders or a massive terrorist whatever it may be it's the kind of things that stops life for years years and years and, um, and and we couldn't recover from that and then tell the same sort of stories we do yeah mm. no I can see that and I mean of course Coronation Street had uh, was it the, the Metrolink crash and all that sort of thing they've, they've had oh, well, I think well. you, yeah like you're saying a lot of shows have tried it haven't they Yes, yeah. I mean, the, the I mean, I mean, there is there is this thing, I mean, phenomena within soaps, isn't there? Where if you if you want to cull half the cast and, and bring your costs down, you you have a disaster. <laughs> That's one way to bring the cost down. <laughs> well, well, absolutely, and and donkeys years ago. Um, um, but I will obviously kind of kill you if you you repeat this. Obviously, you know about this. But yeah, I wrote yeah, for, it's between us. Yeah, um, I wrote for a show called El Dorado. Okay, which was on for a year. And genuinely, it was, it was an utter disaster. I mean, let's be absolutely honest with you. It was a complete disaster. And the, what, when that show finished, there was a genuinely a serious proposal on the table as a last-ditch attempt to keep it, that we put the entire cast on a coach. Okay, the entire cast, everybody goes on a coach. Yeah. It goes off outside Malaga. Okay, and there's nobody left. And then we start the next episode with mm. nobody there. We start 
And one by one, we create a brand new cast. And it was only a half serious suggestion. And actually, maybe we'll save the show. <laughs> the reckon it's that idea that somehow, yep, we got it wrong. And we're going to start again. We'll see what mm. happens. But that happened. No, that was a huge investment, wasn't it? To, I to, actually, I remember watching Eldorado. Yeah, yeah, so. yeah. I, I once, I mean, obviously, you, you worked on it. So, but I remember bumping into Bunny, the actor who played Bunny on um, on the golf course in in uh, Richmond Park, <laughs> <laughs> and he was still trying to live it down, poor bloke. Uh, but you know, it had all the elements that should have worked, and as a, you know, it it just just I, you know, it's one of those things. The the chemistry doesn't quite quite happen, and when you watch something like neighbors which was i suppose at the time it was the bbc's answer to it and in the sense that it was trying to put put a soap and sunnier climbs to give you that thing that ramsey street brought us um and it was it was fascinating watching the last week of neighbors on channel five well should should we let you into a bit of a secret we got really into neighbors in the last week even though i hadn't seen it for 20 years (laughs) (laughs) it took two episodes and i was hooked yes and then he said, but you do know it's finishing forever in a week. Yeah. <laughs> bad timing, Bex. Really bad timing. <laughs> but what was what was fascinating there was the fact that they brought back obviously it was a, a festival of old characters coming back for that final week to say goodbye. And then the final show, you know, we had Scott and Charlene showing up and doing about six words. Um, but the main thing is it was carried by Guy Pierce coming back as Mike from that <laughs> golden era. Really? the late 80s and he gave it absolutely every ounce and of you know or every vault of star power that he could um but still within the context of, of he did a proper job of retur- as a returning character but he's, he's had such Jane. a career hasn't he since then it, it was think... it was astonishing and you know the fact is that it, it has such resonance because you had well, playing Jane the Super Brain. I mean, it just, it you know, for just our, too emotional. It's the power it? of nostalgia. I mean, <laughs> what I'm going round to saying is, with EastEnders, they have done the nostalgia thing occasionally. Yeah. Bringing yeah. back Den from the dead, for instance, which didn't work out too well in the end <laughs> for various other reasons. Um, it still had immense power. Yeah, but it 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 again. It's I think it's a classic case of um, of, of a program starting to eat itself. Really, I mean, um, um, Den was dead. Let's be honest with you. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's it is difficult to bring. We can do any. We we can do all that. But uh, and it's kind of you to call it nostalgic. Um, I think there's other words we could use for it. <laughs> That's um, the um, yeah, it, it is. I mean, just just on the kind of neighbours, EastEnders, and the the whole El Dorado thing. Um, I think temperamentally, um, our versions of those kind of programmes tend to be quite grim. We we wallow in grimness um, in in the UK with our long running serials with our soaps in a way that I don't think the Australians do. And so I'm not quite sure if it was entirely, it was kind of a bit doomed from the start. I mean, to actually try and do this kind of sunshine soap. Um, because in the end, I think the kind of stories that work quite well for us are, are quite grim stories, if mm. you like. Extremes, um, dealing with all sorts of kind of like massive problems. Whereas um, we're not very, well, we weren't definitely very good at the lighter touch. Um, and it, I think it's another reason why perhaps El Dorado didn't quite hit the mark. Yeah, 
Possibly. possibly. You, think, you think that's why people also love reading crime, though? They like yeah. they like mm. to be entertained by grit. Yes, I think so. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I, 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 yeah, it, it, it could well be a massively popular genre. I mean, look at the kind of bestsellers. Um, and yeah, I think, I mean, that, that, might, that may well be it. Yeah, well, we've got one in front of us here. Which is the next, <laughs> next big, massive big bestseller from uh, El Dorado too. I'm, I'm not, not there. there by Rob Gittins, <laughs> um, which I, I'm told is brilliant. Um, no, it, it it is uh fantastic, and let, let's let's concentrate on the on your fiction, you know, full full sort of rast uh, sort of uh, fiction as opposed oh. to um, you know, the 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 tightness of which you have to write a script. Um, this this is which number novel is this in in your in your career now? Seven. Seventh, and it is it is superb. Um, it, it sets, starts out with this intriguing premise yes. of two little girls abandoned on a train by their mother who disappears, and despite all the efforts to search the train, stop it, you know, mid in between tracks and whatever else, they cannot find her. She has disappeared completely. But the reason I like that is it because I think everyone's had that experience as mm. a child. I once got lost in Wolverhampton. I remember it still now. I was only about five. Yeah. And you yeah. know, I couldn't find my dad in W. H. Smith, and it's that horrible panicky feeling. Yeah, yeah. And, and and our main character, Lara Arden, who becomes a a, a, a copper, is six years old, abandoned yes. on a train. Extraordinary, and it you know that that opening premise just is so captivating. Mm. Yeah, I mean, um, I saw it, and I've never told you this. Um, no, that I, I was traveling on a train going back I live in the west of Wales and I, I use the train to London quite a lot and the train pulled out of um, Paddington and there were a mum and two girls um, on the next table to me um, there's a character in the opening chapter a man typing into a laptop that was me actually that was me I um, love it <laughs> the girls to be about six or eight and the mum went off to the buffet I assume and after about five minutes I became aware the six-year-old the younger was getting a bit agitated and didn't think anything about it then about 10 minutes later she was getting very agitated and then she went to walk up and then she kind of came back and she was gesturing at her sister like 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 what what and her sister was a bit more self-conscious I think and she was trying to shush her up and by now I'm watching this and it's quite obvious that she's saying where's my mum you know and I'm thinking well what what do I do do I do anything I don't know these people do I talk to a guard or whatever anyway it took about 15 minutes but her mum came back of course her mum came back and she got talking to somebody whatever it may be and I was writing something at the time I was writing a script it could have been casualty or EastEnders I've no idea and I'd abandoned it and I wrote the first chapter of I'm Not There because it began with what if she didn't come back what if actually she never came back and so it was it was it, you're right it's a universal thing but it's something I actually in one sense I actually saw but didn't see if you know what I mean but yeah but it's also that question isn't it what if I think all crime books are based on a scenario and the yes. what if a normal yes. scenario that like you say could just play out and be fine yes. but yeah but it also has that twin I mean it has that appeal because you can imagine it and we've all felt that as children even for yeah. two or three minutes, you can feel it. But, you know, I remember getting lost in the supermarket. That's as simple as that. I lost Josh in Betsy Coyd once. <laughs> <laughs> Easily done. 
easily done but there is that you know that panic i mean i just remember being panicked and also as a as a, as as a, a parent father, yeah losing my son for 15 minutes on a busy beach uh in cornwall where there were thousands of people and i couldn't see him anywhere i also lost josh at as the Shrewsbury folk festival and that was again, yeah another I panic. Mean, we've all we've from, from <laughs> both sides you feel it but in terms of giving your main character something to work against that that thing that haunts her to the day that we catch up with her as an adult perfect absolutely perfect from a storytelling point point of view yeah yeah i, I mean that's, that's kind of to say so but um it, it it obviously that's that's in a sense where the, the fiction takes over obviously in terms of you know it begins with this this image and then you know whatever um but I, i'm i suppose i'm always fascinated um, and it goes back in a sense to um, what we talked about, about the TV work right at the start. I'm fascinated by legacy. You know, I'm fascinated by, you know, the, the shadows, um, by, you know, by, by the spell the past, you know, really kind of um, um, exerts. And, and this was a stark example. It's a bit like, you know, the age of six in, the, in this character's case, uh, my life imploded. And in a way I couldn't possibly understand. And I'm still living in the shadow of that. And her sister, arguably, um, has never recovered from it in the way mm. that she has. Um, and if there is a mystery buried 20 years in your past, um, you hope at some point it comes out. And of course, the book begins at the point, really, when the 20-year-old mystery is about to be solved um, in ways um, she could never imagine really but at least it's going it's going to be solved it will be solved um and then even though i'm kind of slightly jumping the gun now um what i'm fascinated also um, and that is beyond the scope of this book is once you've actually solved <clears throat> the 20 year old mystery what the hell then you know how I, I mean how do you how do you live with that new how do you live with that new knowledge that you've got i suppose um it's um, it, it's it's you know it's a springboard then for more stories I suppose mm. and also once you've because you, because that lack of knowledge has driven you or your life yeah. and then you have the knowledge what's drive what's going to drive you next yeah absolutely yeah I mean it's it's I mean some doors you shouldn't open. Yeah. <laughs> however tempting yeah no that's true that's true i mean it's funny because as you were saying that i was thinking of um that legacy thing i mean it's been very much in all our thoughts this last 10 days 12 days or whatever because of her majesty's passing and the funeral and all the things that have gone before um this this extraordinary i think i think the moment for for a lot of people is watching the committal service and the moment where they started singing God Save the King and the camera dwelt on Charles with the tears building in his eyes and that thousand-yard stare staring at the coffin, real, that, you, you know, if he were an actor, it would, it would be delivering the moment where he realised there's no going back from this. This is it. He's now in charge. Um, and it was just the most powerful moment. And now the newspapers have got nothing else to talk about in terms of the royals, except raking over all of the arguments that the siblings have had over the years. So today I read in Telegraph that Prince Andrew plotted to get Charles replaced and him to be the regent. It's like he's tenders. 
and all the and all the, and all the ways that Camilla was rejected for until the very the last. Maybe well, you know she was pushed pushed into the into the into the margins until you know just before they got married, and the engagement was announced. Um, she wasn't allowed to attend any events and the Prince Philip wouldn't see her and the Queen Mum refused to speak to her and all this sort of stuff. I mean, it's just, just extraordinary. Yeah, life, art and life. But it's legacy, as you put it. Yeah. It's, it's, it's absolutely it. I, I saw that headline too. I didn't realise what that was about, um, um, Adrian, but yeah, that, 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 you know, that incredibly bizarre thing that, um, was it um, Andrew lobbied for Charles not to be king? And I thought, well, yes. hang on a minute, he's the yes. first how, how does that work <laughs> well it, it, so the story goes and and you know we don't know whether this is true or not but this is in a new book uh prince andrew was lobbying to become the regent this is at the time when william would have been a teenage a okay. teenager and not ready to take the throne allegedly so he was saying that if, if you pass on mummy we need to pass over charles because he's just not worthy of it i i deserve to be the regent i mean just extraordinary Can you so, imagine <laughs> so you, if you're wondering why <laughs> he's been booted into touch quite apart from the the epstein stuff um uh and, and won't be returning anytime soon to frontline royal duty there's your answer if that is true um, he should be in the tower <laughs> and, and 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 i'm a fan because i um i um i wrote prince charles into eastenders so hey hey you know yes uh, I'm, a, I'm a fan <laughs> yeah no exactly i mean he's he's a flawed hero isn't yeah he, in many ways? yeah me too i, I mean he's done he's done some things which um and he reminds know, me of my dad in many ways well yeah I, look, I mean I, i've had some contact with prince charles uh, very briefly but that that you know, ultimately, he's a good man who who's made the odd error. I mean, it's, it's as simple as that, really. Um, yeah. You know, and we all we all do. And um, you know, he, but I don't think he's ever done anything criminal, unlike <laughs> certain other members of the family. Necessarily. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, anyway, we digress. But uh, this this interesting thing about legacy and how it's going to propel this story of Lara and, and future books is, is fascinating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it, it's 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 it's. Again, it's 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 going back to what we were talking about right at the start. Um, it's what fiction also um, allows you to do. You can you, you you've got a much bigger canvas. You know, you can. You, I mean, that story is a twenty-year story, even though we begin in the present day. Yeah, um, it's absolutely a twenty-year story. Um, and again, that's something that you can do, obviously, in novels um, and in long-running series. But it's it's more difficult to do it in um, in other kind of forms. Mm. Absolutely. What's interesting, I think, you know, because this is a this is on the face of it. I mean, it's got a number of, of different facets. But you know, if you if you were to say, right, it's number one thing, it's a police procedural. Yeah. And then, you know, there's a lot of um, you know, there's a lot of uh, suspense and psychological thriller elements to it as well. But essentially, we're talking about a team of police officers. And what I love about the way you've done this is that you have fleshed out these characters extremely well, and given them all a sense of jeopardy, you know, her key colleagues are all working against something in this book. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's very important to me. I mean, it's, it's, um, this is what I, I really enjoy, because um, very often in, in, in scripts, in, in, with my other kind of hat on, you don't get chance to flesh out what you might call secondary characters. Uh, there's just no space to do that. Um, and here, you know, to a 
to an extent anyway. You can create backstory, you can create their own dramas, you can feed that into the main story. And I think it's really important to do that. That, you know, that every, the books I really enjoy is where every single minor character, I think, I'd actually like to follow them out the door as well. Mm. And actually, yeah. kind of, they go. And I'm going to follow my main character because that is what the story is about. But actually, you know, I'd actually like to follow them as well and see what happens with them. And that's, I, I, it's, it's just, it's just, I enjoy reading that kind of book. Um, and so in a sense, learn the lessons, you know, when it's, um, when it comes to writing your own, it just makes it, it, it makes it richer and it makes it more fun for me as well. Um, but it's a, di- kind of it's a difficult thing to manage though, isn't it? I mean, you know, I mean, obviously you, as a writer for television, particularly, um, there's a lot of outlining that goes into that process and it's a team effort quite a lot of the time, isn't it? Um, do you use that same discipline when you're mapping out how these stories are going to go for, for us and, and from your previous books? It's, 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 it is a different, it is a different thing in as much as I think that, um, um, especially in, in, in TV, especially in the kind of long running um, series, um, they tend to hit one beat in a story and then get out to something else. Um, yes. And we, we don't need to do that. You know, we, we, we just don't need to do that. <clears throat> we can, you know, in one chapter, we can tell five or six different stories. I mean, the big danger is it just gets unwieldy and it just, yeah. it, people lose focus and you're thinking, hang on a minute, I, I've had a chapter on him and a chapter on this and I, I want to get back to the main story. So that's the craft of it, is actually making sure that it doesn't swamp the main story if you like. Um, but I, I, I really don't think it needs to. No. Yeah, it's getting the balance right, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, so um, it's, 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 I'm just fascinated by, it's, it's all, this is all I've ever done, is, 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 is be a writer, which I've been really kind of lucky from that point of view. And the thing which I'm just fascinated by different ways of telling stories. I'm just fascinated mm. by, you know, there's, the, 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 there's a million different ways of telling the same story and a million different approaches. And um, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just fascinated by that whole, I'm, I'm still fascinated by the whole craft of it, if you like, um, and the different ways of doing it. Mm. it, it on that subject then, I mean, who's, who's been your, the biggest, who have been the, the writers or the people that you've worked with that have influenced you most, do you think? Do you mean living? Do you mean people I've worked with or people I've well, read? Well, uh, but, but both really. I mean, I suppose you know you've worked with. I mean, we we talked before when we were having lunch together, and I was sort of going, "Oh, you know, you must have worked with John York, who is hugely influential on the in in the world of structure because his book Into the Woods is is one of the seminal works that almost every course I've ever looked at has always said." that's on your bibliography file um and he was the head of drama at the bbc for for quite a long time and at eastenders as well so um his he has a very strong sense of structure and yeah. you know uh he takes that three act structure and makes it five advocates yeah, yeah. that yeah so presumably yeah. he's an influence but who, who have been the people you've worked with and who the people you've read that have influenced you most do you think I mean, I mean, I mean, John. I think is there's an element of genius in John, absolutely. And um, I, I like. I've worked with John for for, for many, many years, and, um, and and like him a lot. And um, he's he's a very, he's he's got a great instinct for um, um, for story, for structure. Um, and so have a lot of kind of the writers on EastEnders, such as kind of like Tony Jordan and yeah. Simon Ashdown, or Phelps, and people like this. In terms of actually kind of um, people 
I've enjoyed. It's just a, a, approaches. There's a, there's a film writer, Simon Moore, and um, I was talking to him once, and um, he, he talked about by the way in which sometimes if you get an idea, um, he actually literally puts the idea down on the floor and walks around with the idea. So if, for example, the idea is about, um, it's about a, it, this is a love story, a, a boy and a girl. Well, he puts it on the floor and he walks around it and he says, well, what else could it be? Pensioners, well, just to give you an example, he did that with um, um, the, a, 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 a film, um, which um, Jim Henson um, of the Muppets fame um, eventually did. And what Simon did was he took the oldest story in the world in one sense, which is the nativity story. And he put it down and he walked around the nativity story and he told it, the oldest story in the world, from the point of view of the animals. Mm. And all of a sudden, it's like, oh, it's like, yeah. hang on. <laughs> That's just like so simple. And it's genius as well. Yeah. Again, yeah. I think it's, it's that thing about actually, you know, writers like that who have got a completely, on one sense, really simple approach. But on the other hand, it's, it's really liberating. So you take any idea but you just walk around it and you say, who else is in the room? You know, if, if I'm going to tell a story about my cop, why aren't I telling it from the point of view of the cleaner who actually is listening from the other side of the door? Or it, not necessarily, you know, this, but it's, it's that idea that in any story, there's lots of peripheral characters. And actually, are you better served by focusing on them? Mm, um, makes it fresh, doesn't it? Yeah, I'm just think I'm just thinking about the nativity. I'd like to do it from the point of view of the innkeeper, but have it yeah, as Basil, star. Basil Fawlty as the innkeeper. Can you imagine? Yeah. <laughs> I um just just on that very briefly. I um a, a novel I wrote. Um, I I did a documentary donkeys years ago about um the um the last three weeks in the life of Dylan Thomas, which is in New York. Um, and um, it, the documentary went went down well. We've won a few awards. But I was approached by the BBC to do a feature film based upon it because it seemed to have everything. It, you know, it was, a, it was a famous poet. It was a doomed love affair. It was, you know, he tragedy, all that kind of stuff. I could never make it work. I could never, ever make it work because essentially, dramatically, the story was about this guy who goes out to America who behaves badly then behaves really badly then even worse and then dies. It was just grim. There was just nothing to hang on to at all. And then after talking to Simon and years later, <clears throat> I came across the notes that I'd written for that documentary film. And in the notes was that Time Magazine, he'd sued Time Magazine at the time um, to actually, um, because they'd written this profile about him and he decided it was libelous. So Time Magazine, for the last few weeks of Dylan's life, put a private detective on his tail. So for the last few weeks of his life, he had a private detective on his tail watching him, observing him. And I suddenly thought, 20 years later, I suddenly thought, yep, this, isn't, bingo. this isn't a story about Dylan Thomas. It's a story about a private detective. It's a story about a private detective who gets a job. And he's never heard of Dylan Thomas. He's never, he doesn't like poetry, but he's got a job to do. And actually, through him tailing Dylan, the private detective changes. He, he, he finds what he's been looking for, whatever it may be. Um, and all of a sudden, it's a, it's a story of hope. So again, it's an example of actually looking at a story and then taking a peripheral character and telling the story through him. 
yeah absolutely uh, yeah no that's that's fine. i mean i you mentioned dylan thomas and i think, think as a as a welsh based writer, i mean i know you're not from from wales originally you know from uh from from the from the north but it, it he hangs over every author operating from wales doesn't he uh i get the impression yeah and it's it's i mean i live <clears throat> very close to larn which is um the boathouse and all that kind of stuff and um yeah completely um he's 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 a massive presence i think i think some people in larn find it a bit irritating on occasions yeah <laughs> it's uh but there we go um but and again, it's down to it's it's down to myth. It's down to the early death. It's down to everything. He was a fantastic poet. Well, let's be honest. So, yeah. Um, <clears throat> that. But um, yeah, the, 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 there's an element of Dylan, the icon, I think, which is very mm. very powerful in this part of the world, <clears throat> and and probably anywhere. Yeah, I think so. And you know, just recently we, uh, we had Michael Sheen doing Under Milkwood, uh, which everyone was talking about the last couple of weeks um and uh, it, it's funny because when i went to i went to journalism school in cardiff and even there um i remember we were being taught by a, a welsh journalist guy called russell line who used to be the editor of the star daily right. star uh, a fantastic guy um with a sort of real rubby cunt face and uh he had a bit of a short temper but if he liked you he really liked you and he liked <laughs> he liked my irreverent approach to the job <laughs> And he said, but he would always shut out and go, all right, so let's read this copy. Well, it's hardly Dylan Thomas, is it? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was the benchmark. <laughs> I love it. It was, uh, it was, he was fantastic. <laughs> because I wrote this, this headline and it was about, we were given, um, this is very early on. This is the first few weeks. And we were sat there with our, we, all of us had typewriters because none of us had word processes. You're not that case. old. No, no, 1994, <laughs> we all had typewriters. Yeah. And we would, the job was to write uh, this by this stage. We were given some uh, agency copy. So you'd have six or seven paragraphs yeah. of a story. And you had to then condense it into two or three lines for broadcast to get that story in essence in, in one short thing. Uh, but the, the the particular lesson we were having with Russell that day was writing headlines, right? And um, it was this was about a Muslim uh, shopkeeper who corner shop owner who'd been robbed, and had chased the robbers uh, and had somehow got entangled in their Ford Sierra, which was driving down the street at forty miles an hour with a bunch of cigarettes and some money from the till, and he got dragged along the street. He survived, but. Um, uh, anyway, <laughs> I don't know why I said this. And, and in the current context of everything that's in, in modern life, I can't say this now, really, but I wrote a headline saying, have a go, Hindu. Right. <laughs> 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 and um, and he, Russell Lang goes, I should absolutely tear you to pieces for that. That is one of the worst headlines, but it's bloody funny. <laughs> you, do you want a job at the star? <laughs> <laughs> So uh, yeah, I, from from then on, I, I'd made a friend, but um, for, for for all the wrong reasons. But uh, anyway, I, I digress. But it is interesting that 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 sense of, um, and I think this is true for Irish writers as well. And the indeed, mythology, so, yeah, the mythology, the the way that a lot of people write with that rhythm, the yeah. Dylan Thomas sense of it's more than just getting some words down on the page that work as a sentence. Yeah. It's got a cadence. It's got a feel. And I think that's true of yours too. 
Well, um, it's, it's the first time I've been compared. To <laughs> but I, I, I will take it <laughs> from a man who came up with that headline. It's, uh, it's been... <laughs> yeah. I was young. <laughs> no, it's a great headline. Um, yeah, it, it is. It's. It's. Um, I, I've sort of got a foot in both camps, and I mean, I've lived here for well over forty years. So yeah. you know, I, I do have sort of like residency status in a sense. <laughs> but um, but um, it, it's it's uh, it, it um, as you said, I'm I'm not from this part of the the world. So in a sense, that the shadow that Dylan casts, as it were, from birth over Welsh writers, if that's what he does. It's I, I I came to him quite late, and in fact, the one bit I think of a Dylan Thomas story that I was always particularly interested in, which is why we did the film <clears throat> and we did the novel, is the whole American connection. Because um, I I I used to sit on the, the the wall of the boathouse when I first moved down here in the in the late seventies, and just trying to imagine what it was like going from the boathouse in nineteen fifty to America, mm. you know extraordinary um and the, the worlds and the, the, the change and everything and um i i you know i i, I became quite fascinated about by that particular part of the dylan story if you like and mm. um that's plugged into that mythology now given given you you're from i think i'm am i wrong in saying you were from salford originally or from that neck of the woods stockport yeah. manchester yeah, yeah manchester, manchester. Have you ever written for Corrie? It's your hometown. Never been asked. Is it simple? <laughs> so, so, so no. Uh, and I think it would be, it, it's, it, it's two things. Um, it, I think it's a fantastic show. And um, it, it does things that I think on EastEnders we struggle to do. It, it's got a lightness of touch and it's got um, a kind of like a, 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 an ability to kind of like project comedy, which I think it's fair to say EastEnders struggles to do. I mean, I think we've got different strengths. Um, but I think historically, um, I was born and bred in central Manchester. I was born in Moss Side and we lived all over Manchester. My mum was utterly obsessed with Coronation Street. It began in <laughs> 1960. It was, you know, whatever. When I was growing up in Manchester, particularly in the 70s, um, nothing, to be honest, in Coronation Street rang. I didn't recognise Manchester in Coronation Street at all. I didn't recognise where I was living in Coronation Street at the time. Um, and when EastEnders came along in the 80s, um, it, it's, it's only because it just, the whole, the whole, it seemed to be, to me anyway, again, this, it goes back to different ways of telling stories. It seemed to be more raw. It seemed to be more edgy. It seemed to be taking more risks. And I think Coronation Street, um, would concede that it, it, it forced that, that the way that EastEnders um, burst on the scene in the 1980s, it did force Coronation Street perhaps to um, become a little more edgy as well. Mm. You know, I think temperamentally, I, I, really, I really responded to um, EastEnders. Uh, and, after, and, and also there is an, un, it's not strictly true because one writer has, but there is an unwritten sort of rule that really you don't go between EastEnders. <laughs> I like that. Yes, I was going to say. <laughs> Crossing but, the divide. <laughs> is, but the bottom line is, Adrian, they've never asked me. So, <laughs> if they not, did, what would you say? Well, it's a tough one. <laughs> he says, side. 
one quickly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it depends what the offer is. Uh, I, it's interesting because, I mean, you know, it is this phenomenon. You've sat there at the National Soap Awards when you got your Lifetime Achievement, which is a fabulous thing. And I've watched it on YouTube and it is a, <laughs> it is just wonderful, the sort of tributes you got and the, the excitement of the cast of EastEnders around you for your award, which was richly, richly deserved. Um, but nonetheless, those awards, and I used to watch them because they um, they tended to be made at the television center right. in the big studio one. And I used to watch the soap stars arrive because I would be, you know, working in the sport department and we'd come out and there would be the red carpet and all this sort of thing. The bitter rivalry on screen between Corrie and EastEnders. And one year it would be a, a Coronation Street year and they'd win everything and EastEnders would be sat in the chair just going, you know, doing the happy face, <laughs> for, <laughs> trying, to, trying to clap through. And then next year it would be, like EastEnders turn to win eight awards or whatever it is and, you know, get the star of the year and all that, la, 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 new storyline and all that malarkey. <laughs> is it like that in the green room afterwards when they're having the drinks? Is, <laughs> or is it is it much more camaraderie? I, um, I, I think we're, I mean, I, I wish, I wish to be honest with you, I, I've been to one soap award in my life, which was that one. Yeah. Okay, because I, I was told I had to be there, which it would have been very, um, um, I genuinely... I don't, it's not me being diplomatic, because I wouldn't be diplomatic, actually, I'd tell you. I genuinely don't know. Um, the, the, there's fierce rivalry in terms of, um, you know, um, I think the, the BBC and, and ITV really would prefer to win, as opposed to, like, win nothing at all, you know. Um, the mm. actors, it's, it's, it's difficult. Actors, again, it was changed. Um, from the early days is that um, actors would go into EastEnders as actors would go into Coronation Street and would stay sometimes decades. Um, we, we find it very, very difficult to hang on. I think all of soaps do. Very difficult to hang on, especially to young actors, because after a year or so, there's an awful lot of opportunities out there. There's an awful lot of kind of shows out there. Um, and they get, they, they, they do get concerned about being typecast I mean you know it, it, it amuses me because we had um, f fantastic characters um, Sam Womack who was Ronnie Mitchell in EastEnders yeah. whenever she's I mean she left I don't know years ago years ago but she's still referred to in the press as EastEnders actress Sam <laughs> Womack yeah and so much else and you just know that that label will always be with her um, even though she's in the show relatively short period of time. So I think, going back to your question, I'm, 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 I mean, I, 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 who knows? They might go between different shows, so it, it's probably not a good idea to upset people too No, much. no, true. True enough. But you think about crime writers, though, when they are all up for an award, everyone's all lovely, aren't they? They are broadly, yeah. Yeah, even though they've got a dagger. If they've got a dagger, you think they'd want to stab each other. But <laughs> you've, you've hit the nail on the head there, Bex. I, I joined the Crime Writers Association before I'd had a crime novel published. They let me in. Um, <laughs> basis that an awful lot of the shows I'd written, including The Archers, had an awful lot of crime in it. So they kind of, like, let me in through the back door. I, I was... And I, I read... I was in awe, I still am, in awe of these writers uh, who wrote some of the most blood-curdling stories you could imagine and were so gentle and so <laughs> nice and really extraordinary. Mm. You're really nervous about going to kind of see these people. And, and also, genuinely, I found that the whole crime writing community, for a brand-new writer um, like myself, incredibly supportive as well. 
Uh, and I'm not absolutely sure if in television, particularly, people would be as supportive. No, no, I think that's possibly true. I think I think the broadcast mm. media, um, you know, whichever avenue you come at it from, it's a catty business. It really is. Um, yeah. There's a lot of people trying to climb over each other to get further towards the perceived top. Um, which I think, again, you know, is one of the things that I find so remarkable about your achievements in the sense that you know, you've steered a path. <laughs> you keep being employed, which is because you're good, obviously. But the politics side of things, you somehow managed to steer through that, too. Yeah, it's, it's I think I think it's really important. It's 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 I've seen a lot of writers. They, they, they get they get very close to the seats of power. Uh, and and it's it's very dangerous. I think it helps that I actually live hundreds of miles away production <laughs> base. You know, um, and it's, it's very easy to get sucked into to it all. But it's going back to what you said right at the start of it as well, Adrian. Um, inevitably, um, the regimes will change every three or four years. Not because the producers in question aren't any good. It's because nobody can sustain that job for much more than three or four years it's so intense it's so relentless and it's like they, they give it their it, it, you know hey footballers in one sense you know but they give it well, their, prime their, ministers prime ministers and then um, in in months now is the kind of um, is the kind of lifespan it seems it's, um, no absolutely it's that they give it their very very bad they burn brightly um but um it, it's I'm just not very good at politics either I just I just I'd rather sit down and write the stories mm. you know that's that's I get my kick from that really and I think that if you're the, if you're a producer or whatever then yeah you you've got different talents and different you know di- different ways of approaching things but I'm happy it's just sitting down and writing a story for you guys sitting on the train the man on the laptop uh, I, I, <laughs> I, this is a I mean we've got a lot of writers listening to this and uh, of, of novels and yeah. um, one of the obviously the the things that you have to become very good at in your world uh, from you know the other side of your your work is the dialogue side of things because that is the main one of the main ways you convey your story I and mean, it's it's carried in in interaction between characters in dialogue and to some extent in the way that the director and the the cast will interpret your stage instructions but um, that must be you know that is one of the, the the strengths you bring to your writing i presume but you know uh what am i looking for here um i guess from from those two that your two hats if you're looking at that point of view ha, what what have you learned from writing so many tv and and radio and, and and scripts um that has strengthened your dialogue in 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 your novels it's, it's, it's interesting you mentioned about, about dialogue, but um, I, I sort of, it, it, it's a really interesting debate. It really is, because um, to me, the key thing in anything, actually particularly in TV, um, is, is structure. And yeah. it's really interesting, actually, if you look back on the his, history of fantastic shows, loads and loads of shows, you're going to be hard put to find many examples of what you might call memorable dialogue. You might have memorable scenes, you might have memorable stories, but actually what I tend to find is the dialogue absolutely comes last. 
but it's the it's it's the structure it's it's um say i'm writing on eastenders um, on eastenders for example because it's the show um, done for a long time so there's, there's other examples but um we get a page of notes that's all we get is a page of notes and they say go away and make it work basically structure it however you want to structure it begin wherever you want bring characters in there's no scene by scene breakdowns you just you just kind of like you've got your half hour of yeah. tv and you gotta hit and these you, points yeah you hit those points but you structure it how you want and and i spend quite a lot of time trying to kind of work out the structure of this and so in a sense the dialogue comes last actually right and people will actually kind of say well that's a really good whatever but if you press them to remember what the character actually said very often they can't remember. They can remember the scene. They can remember everything about mm. it. Um, so I think it's, it's really important not to get, um, you know, obviously dreadfully stilted dialogue. But I think to begin from the dialogue, um, very often it, it, it's the other way around. Right. It's mm. almost, that's, that's fascinating. Yeah, that is interesting. Yeah, I didn't know I mean, that. The, the scene that keeps coming back to me in my mind, I don't know if you wrote it, but the, the famous, uh, the, the bomb, as you put it, that they, they laid when the Slaters came in. Yes. And um, Kat's having a go at um, uh, yes. what's her name? I can't remember now. <laughs> Jesse? No, that's no, what, no. What, no, that's the actress. What was the that name was... of his, her, her, her? Mo. No. Mo. Sorry, no. Zoe. Zoe, not Mo. <laughs> Zoe. Right. You're not my mother. Yes, I am. And that that, that was just a classic bomb oh, going off in EastEnders. It's a classic bomb, you know, and it's 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 one of the kind of very few very few bits of dialogue you can remember, you know. Of course you can, you know, and that's that's great. Although, if I repeat, if I said that to you beforehand, I said, "Well, it's going to end on you ain't my mother." Oh yes, I am. You're going, well, that's a bit flat, but it's brilliant. <laughs> yeah, of, yeah. Because of the way in which all the way through that ride, which was in fact Tony Jordan, I mentioned him earlier, mm. brilliant built. The antagonism all the way through the episode. You know, they've yes. gone out for like a, a meal. That it was a, you know, whatever. He built and built and built and built it. So actually, it was again. It was it was the structure. Everything led to that moment. And 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 really, if 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 that's not in place, if if I'm writing an episode in which I don't know, um, Phil kicks Grant down the stairs or whatever it may be, I've really got to take Phil on the journey in that mm. episode that sort of ending which an explosive ending yeah satisfying unbelievable and it all it sort of doesn't matter what they say to each other it's just making sure that actually when i've got that graph of phil i follow him all the way through from that point and uh, you know building 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 then take a little breath and then building back even more and worse until the audience are actually going oh my god this is going to end really badly and then it does end really badly <laughs> Yeah, I mean, and I think, well, in a sense, it's it, it is interesting the whole dialogue thing, um, but and it's really really important. And it's obviously important um, in 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 novels, and as much as you know, but I, but I, but I think it's secondary to the structure. If you like, that, that's that's fascinating, I, isn't it? Interesting. I mean, because you think about the soaps and its catchphrases, isn't it? Repeat re- repeat phrases, which. But we uh, all have those. Well, we do. Yeah, I mean, it's very human. But you say I digress a lot. But, you know, you think about EastEnders, you know, get out of my pub and all that stuff. And, you know, oh, Dr. Leg and all that stuff. I mean, it's just like, you know, you, you, sum, you can sum up each character. Or in, in, in Frank's case, it's just that dirty chuckle, isn't it? I mean, it's, you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and, and Frank 
Brian just wrote better dialogue than anybody else anyway. So it's just like, you know. Yeah, I mean, of he course, of course. Wait, I mean, who else would come up with Pilchard? You know, it's like fantastic. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that's another thing, isn't it? I mean, you've got, you've got, a, you've got a, <laughs> you're in inner city, East End London with, okay, an increasingly diverse cast, which many people would argue should be a lot more diverse if it was to reflect the East End as it is now. But the bottom line is no one can swear <laughs> when every other word, if you're out on the streets, especially with the young people, is going to yeah. be something, you know, uh, fruity. Yeah. <laughs> fruity. It's, 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 it's a big problem. And, and, and the other problem I think we have as well, and it, again, it goes back to your um, um, Have a Go Hindi headline, yeah. which is quite serious in one sense, it as much as we are now as well forbidden really from exploring not only dialogue as it would be spoken but occasionally stories that would be told because yes. they're difficult they're difficult to navigate on in in in, in, in modern broadcasting uh, yeah. which is you know and, and looking back on stories that we did even 30 30 40 years ago uh, you know we wouldn't do some of those stories today I mean, no. think of EastEnders. EastEnders began with an affair between a 45-year-old man and a 15-year-old girl in Michelle yeah. Fowler. Forty yeah. Den, whose name was, whose name Dirty Den because of it, got her pregnant. I'm not yeah. sure we could do that story now. No, <laughs> you couldn't. Maybe we shouldn't. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying it's, it's bad. What I'm trying to say is it's fascinating the way in which, even in the context of this one single programme, um, broadcasting has changed, and yeah. and certain things we could have done back then are, are just not acceptable anymore. Mm. Let, let's turn back to I'm not there, and, and in fact, we should mention that we have another novel coming from you very soon, The Devil's Bridge Affair, which can't wait for that as well. That's no, it's only a month after this one, which is uh, you know again a multifaceted uh, novel in the sense that you're telling the story from a number of perspectives. Um, Perhaps drawing more on the sort of, uh, I suppose, the sense of the the, the TV structure that you've, you 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 know, your 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 day to day job is 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 based in, uh, but nonetheless, we're thrilled to have two Gittins. Yeah. We are, yeah. Meisterworks <laughs> um, coming out soon. Meisterworks. Uh, <laughs> She's in Wales. <laughs> Sorry, I don't know what the Welsh is for Meisterworks. <laughs> well, you're not as thrilled. I'm, I'm, I'm really thrilled. So, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I mean, where where are we going to take Lara and her cohorts next? Do you think what's where's that? Are you going to focus on one of them, or is it still going to be you know that the vacuum of answering her story, one aspect of her story, her back you know backstory? Um, is is she still the focus for next next one? I I, I think so. I think that because um, the, the more and more um, I, I went into that. Um, it, it's exactly what you and what you were talking about, Bex, right at the start of all this, is the fact that um, it's 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 one thing to solve this twenty-year-old mystery; it's another to live with it, if you like. And without giving anything away in, in terms of the plot of "I'm Not There," um, that there, there, there is a, a central, a key location um, in that book, um, which was an old home, if you like, where um, children used to. And, and whatever it may be and um, I become fascinated by that whole thing and I, I think one of the things 
in, in a sense, I'd like to, I'd like to, again, without giving anybody any spoilers, obviously, uh, one of the things I'd really like to kind of pursue, and, and I'm working on that now, is, is the idea that um, there was a story that enmeshed Lara's mother. And um, even though um, Lara might have worked out what that story was, it's still unresolved in terms of justice in terms yes. of you know and I, and I think that and that that that's the driver for this if you like um but again going back to what you said Adrian about the minor the well, for want of a better word the minor characters having stories they've all got things to pursue as well and they all went through certain arcs in the first book in I'm not there and the effects of those will play out in the second book as well um Fantastic. and oddly enough that, that then does become quite a sort of like a, a TV structure, if you like, because you are following different diff, different stories at different times. Brilliant, brilliant. I think it's time to uh, to to put put you in front of the, the, the toughest question in in British podcasting. Oh, no, <laughs> sorry about this. Sorry about this. You don't escape Rebecca's random question. This came to me on the way back from playing tennis today, and I don't know why. I was looking at a field of cows and. I don't know why this question came to me, but if you were in a band, what instrument would you play and why? It wasn't a band, but I'm not allowed to kind of use my, my not allowed to say my instrument, am I? Because that would be boring. Well, well um, we'd like to know that as well. So yeah, you can love do both. To know that. Yeah. <laughs> triangle. I'd like to play the triangle. <laughs> To play the triangle uh, when in primary school when we used to kind of stand up on the um it, it's, it's the only thing that let me play was a triangle um so um i'd like to play the triangle in a in a band i used to play the guitar in a band actually right. that's what i did i played that really badly um <laughs> what was your band called <laughs> no 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 i'm not gonna tell you <laughs> we're gonna look it up um <laughs> he was in a band too yeah i was a dreadful drummer um we have a there's a photo of you isn't there one or two one we, or two perhaps we should share it on twitter because it's a great I, photo I was, I was a really <laughs> really poor drummer um yeah i tried i tried extremely hard but uh yeah i really didn't have it but you know it's fun isn't it Bank, being in a band i mean it's 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 a very exposed part of the creative process i think i mean you, you learn a lot from doing it because you're in a creative you know, it, it it's supposed to be a creative partnership. It's supposed to be a team. And when it's at its best, it is like that. But I tell you what, I don't know if it's experience for you, an awful lot of the time, it doesn't feel like that. Because yeah. it's, you know, when you hear polished live performances by bands, the amount of work and the talent needed to be able to all of them perform towards their best at any yeah. given time yeah. is awesome, yeah. actually. Um because there are so many factors that can play a part in it all going wrong. And I blame the triangle. Player. I don't know about you, but I've played enough sweaty <laughs> pubs to know that as a drummer, for instance, um, the experience of rehearsing in a cold rehearsal studio in a pigsty at the back of someone's farm is completely different to being in a place where a hundred people are pressed together and sweat's dripping off the walls and you can't hold on to your drumsticks. Oh, you got sweaty hands. <laughs> no, I used to t- you have to have talcum powder and just, Oh, it like songs. Yeah. Yeah. I used to use chalk to try and get some Every, grip on my sticks because they would just fly everywhere. Um, I don't know what it was like for you as a guitarist. Everybody would think it was cocaine. That's the problem. Yeah. Yes. 
<laughs> Unless they got uh, Adrian's Not... giving it some today, isn't it? <laughs> no, it's futsal powder, yeah. <laughs> Never even got to that stage, right? And the, and the whole point about the name is dead simple. I, I swear, we spent, of the time we were together, 95% of the time trying to come up with a name. That was the most important thing. Yeah. That was all we were interested in, was a really cool name. We never got a cool name at all. I mean, the other bits, the kind of rehearsals and doing things like that, we, we didn't do very much of that. <laughs> we weren't very good. Well, I just remember, I remember the guitarist in my first band, um, he would tune for over an hour. So we'd be booking, you know, the rehearsal space or whatever. It usually around my house, actually. But we would we would have a rehearsal. And it's 15 quid an hour or something. And this is the 80s, and it's a lot of money. And yeah. um, and he's spending an hour trying to get his machine heads in, in line or whatever. And it's just like, for Christ's sakes. And so I, I would draw things to that to a close by throwing a drumstick at the back of his head from behind my drum stool, you know, bang. Uh, and then he'd say, what was that for? I said, well, we want to play. Now, I don't care what your tuning is. We're going to get on with it. Would you like to know what instrument I would tune? Yes, we about? would like to know that, yes. Glockenspiel. Glockenspiel. Yeah. Because yeah. like, like your memory of school, I remember my primary school had an amazing wooden glockenspiel, but you weren't allowed to play it. Why not? <laughs> because you might damage it or something. I don't know. I don't know. They're quite expensive, yeah. But yeah, I yeah. do remember being at the back playing the triangle and going, ding, at the right moment. <laughs> Always the wrong moment, and they're staring at you saying, "What?" Yeah, <laughs> you know, one three, see. Or you ding it so violently that the thing's spinning round. And <laughs> yeah, it's true. Well, what a wonderful uh, thought to to leave us on. Uh, Rob with your tri- triangle, you with your glockenspiel, me with my old drum kit. Oh, we'd make a great band. Let's form a band. <laughs> right, next the next lunch. Okay, in yeah. um. Right, I'll bring my triangle. <laughs> I don't know where I'm going to get the drum. I don't know where I'm going to get Glockenspiel from. <laughs> where am I going to get my drum set from? Anyway, we'll worry about that. These are these are first world problems. Excuses <laughs> um, already. I mean, hey, I'll bring my triangle. That's it. <laughs> yeah, that's that's awesome. I'll I'll bring a have a go Hindu. Uh, right. Okay. Let's uh, let's let's draw this to a close. Rob, it's it's been a, an an immense pleasure to 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 speak to you, and it's immense honor for us to be your publisher as well so congratulations with i'm not there and good luck with it thank you very much it's um um i feel exactly the same about you guys and best of luck with everything for you too thank you very much indeed if we were giving awards out for the nicest members of our hobet community it's um we've got a new entry now highest new entry rob gittins and one of the nicest people we've ever worked with so would you not say? I mean, they're all wonderful. They're all you're all wonderful. All of you listening out oh, there. Oh, it's but... like children, isn't it? You can't have a favour. No, you can't. We don't have a favour. <laughs> but honestly, you know, it's just been a pleasure. And, um, you know, uh, when he says, you know, thank you for all the things we do for him, um, it just feels, you know, it makes a big difference to us, uh, as indeed all of our authors when when they're <laughs> happy with our with our input. But, so, um, but yeah, what a, what an amazing career he has had. So we 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 talked just before the interview about the fact that he was uh, located in a room full of books. Mm. Now something happened to me yesterday, which I'm glad I wasn't Rob Gittins when it happened. Yes, <laughs> we'll be talking about the late Rob Gittins if it had happened to him. So I, I was um, retrieving an art book for uh, my middle son who's doing A level art, and by pulling this art book out, the whole bookcase fell on top of me. Yeah, and of course. Me being the gallant soul that I am, I lay in bed and just stayed there. 
yeah, I had actually had um, a sort of, uh, at that moment, some news I didn't want to Yeah, hear. so you were forgiven. But I did come I was... into you and I said, well, don't Tra- worry, I'm fine. <laughs> yeah, this whole thing collapsed on you. I, I felt really bad about it. It was just one of those moments in life where I got hit with something, not books. Yeah. Uh, and you got hit with something, and, which were books. And I recovered quite quickly and you haven't yet. But anyway. <laughs> no, not entirely. No, no, not entirely. But it's that's life, isn't it? And in the discussion of life, the big moment has arrived. Um, so we're recording this on Saturday afternoon. By the time, uh, this time tomorrow, Luke would have flown your nest. But not literally. No. Um, in a car. Your eldest son going to university. I know. Leeds. He's going, in, well, I'm going as well. We're taking him in the it's, morning. If, oh, God, you're going to be in bits when you get back. Um, oh. it, yeah, I... Um, you know, it's a it's a seminal moment in life. I took my eldest son Ben back to his university last week at Loughborough, and I got emotional. And he's in his final year. Yeah. So. So. <laughs> what am I going to be like? Yeah. Um. It's it's something. It really is. Yeah. I was packing some things from this morning from the kitchen, like two plates, two knives, two forks. So you might notice a few things missing. Yeah. Um. And they and it just it just feels so strange because. It really, I know it's a cliche, and every parent says this, but it does not seem like 18 years to, since I was pushing him on the swing. Mm. No, it's it's something else. Well, that's a big moment. This week is, um, how's that shaping up? Well, I've got to look after my dad for a bit because he is uh, edging towards a major heart operation, but not quite, but he needs some, some support this week, so I'll be doing that. Uh, I've got lots of... Um, well, we've got lots of aspects of our business that we're we're sort of revising at the moment, so that's going to be my focus when I can get the time to do it. Yeah, and uh, and likewise, you're always busy, so nothing changes there. No, no, we we've got uh, book publishing as we, obviously we've talked about. Yeah, I'm already. not there coming out. No, you're got... not there. You're at your dad's house. No, I'm at my dad's house while that comes out. <laughs> that's true. Um, so there's that on Tuesday, which is. Uh, we're looking forward to that. There's an enormous pigeon on the fence. Yeah, there is. But I'm actually looking at a beautiful wagtail up on the... Um, I'm not even sure it's a wagtail. I don't know what it is. It's got yellow plumage, but a very long tail. And beautiful. Uh, earlier, up, up on the top. Well, we, we, just after we finished... Um, sorry, just after we began the podcast, there was a robin. So we've got all sorts of bird life. It's extraordinary, yeah. Yeah, we have. There is actually another wagtail, but the, I don't know what that one... What the other yellow one is. I've got to get my binoculars. Where's the cat? Yeah, we're not allowed to kill those. They're beautiful birds. Anyway, no, she We, she we are digra- we're, we're, as usual, filling the time. We've already got one of the, uh, you know, quite a long interview to, uh, to, we ought to, we ought to wrap up at this point. Yeah, so basically next week we're going to be busy. That's oh, it. Yeah, <laughs> end of, end of. Well, listen, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, our guests next week, we already know because we've interviewed them already. And uh, it is the husband and wife team, otherwise known as R.C. Bridgestock, who've written... Uh, let's see, 14 novels now uh, based around Bob being the R, Robert uh, was a detective superintendent by the time he retired from West Yorkshire Police and Carol also worked for West Yorkshire Police he did, yeah and so their combined knowledge of uh, crime fighting together with their knowledge of humanity and all these wonderful cases that you will hear next week I mean, just the most extraordinary uh, detail of of what the sort of things that they've been working on, but also they are the script consultants in terms of policing for the brilliant Happy Valley, the award winning, multi award winning Sarah Lancashire series, 
Happy Valley, which absolutely smashed things uh, not very long ago for the BBC. Um, and you can, as you'll hear, uh, a lot of the things that were featured on screen were very heavily influenced by Bob's uh, extraordinary career in West Yorkshire Police. So uh, that's next week. R.C. Brigstock is with us, uh, or with are with us, and um, it is. Uh, it's. It's. It, we can't wait to to bring that to you. By the way, um, make sure you have a couple a couple of cups of tea ready for that one because it's going to be a long one. Yeah, make sure you go to the toilet before we you start listening. Yeah, because it, it's it's, it, it, it's got so much. It was. I mean, I think we could have gone on for another oh, hour probably, or so. It's probably. It was yeah, fantastic, I, and we didn't speak much at all, did we? <laughs> Hardly. We but, were just murmuring and going, yes. Well, it's because I was mesmerised. Yeah, it I was mesmerising. It was mesmerising. Absolutely. Well, you'll find out next week. Anyway, from myself, Adrian Hobart. And myself, Rebecca Collins, and all the bird life in the garden. And all the bird life in the garden, and Rob Gittins, which sounds like it could be a bird. Um, thank you very <laughs> much for joining us. Uh, and don't forget to go to our website, www.hobeck.net. You'll find out all the details of our authors, our books, our audiobooks, and all that sort of thing. But between now and then, we wish you a wonderful and creative week. You've been listening to the Hobcast from Hobeck Books with Adrian Hobart and Rebecca Collins. You can find the show notes at our website, www.hobeck.net. You can also use the exclusive Hobcast discount code for any of the products at our Hobeck online store. Just enter the code HOBCAST20 for a 20% discount. Don't forget to subscribe to the Hobcast and feel free to contact us with any feedback. Until next time, remember our motto, Trad Values, Indie Spirit. Indie Spirit.